0: Hi, this is T. Morris, live at Balticon, and you're listening to The Melting Podcast. I put in an order for cheese fondue years ago. I'm still waiting for it.
1: You're listening to The Melting Podcast.
2: A writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone everywhere.
0: Stores and more chefs hey guess what today is
2: friday
1: wow you're wrong you're so wrong
2: well the days all do kind of run together here in the disaster kitchen they do but today's a very special day friday
1: no try again
2: oh 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 i know i know i know me me pick me pick me pick me i know I'm gonna ask
1: Podcat. Hey, Rainy, what day is it?
2: Pick me. Meow.
1: Pick me. Podcat is not, you know, participating. So Aaron? she's
2: not cooperative. Erin? Me. Yes. It's August first.
1: Which means your name matches your birthday. Yes, it does. But what else does it mean? It's your birthday. What else does it mean?
2: Anniversary. It's the podcast's birthday. It's the potiversary. The pot,
1: the podcast anniversary.
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know. I kind of like potiversary. Yeah. So yeah. It's and a-, a pottery.
1: Okay. Why don't you just face the wall and be quiet for a while? Okay. It is our second anniversary here at the Melting Podcast, and holy crap, what a two years it has been. Erin, you can participate again.
2: <laughs> Yay! Did a cat just run into the door and then scramble away?
1: I think so, and you know what? I'm going to leave it because it's my birthday. I don't care.
2: (laughs) Well, I said scramble, which you could take as scrambled eggs, so it's food-related, therefore it belongs in the podcast anyway.
1: Alright, let's go with it. I'll take it. Welcome to episode 33 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your head, Chef A.F. Grappin.
2: I am your grill, Mistress Erin Kazmark.
1: It's our anniversary... (laughs) Aww. And I'm a year older.
2: No, just old. You don't have to say all the rest of that. You can just say old. Shut up. Aww. It sounds so cute for being so old. I'm 32. It's always going to be old compared to me. I'm 28.
1: You young whippersnapper.
2: Get off my lawn! It's my lawn.
1: Shut up. <laughs> Okay, so let's stop with the, you know, messing around and actually get down to business.
2: Why because we, why would you do that to me? Because we have
1: an episode to do. They
2: love us. They do love
1: us, but we need to do an episode.
2: We are doing an episode.
1: Well, Isn't we, that what we're doing right now? Yes, it is, but we, we have content.
2: Oh, we need to let other people's stuff shine. Yes. Right. Which is why
1: we have a cook-off challenge. Yes! Yeah! You might remember a couple months ago we mentioned that Austin Malone and Scott Roche had slapped each other with oven mitts. Well, today we see the results. We've got the uh, second cook-off challenge that we've ever done. This is uh, a
2: summer cook-off. This is, yes, yes. Feel the heat. Feel the burn. Burn. I'm done.
1: Okay. <laughs> this is a head-to-head Uh, Like I said, Austin Malone versus Scott Roche. This is based on prompt number eight is what they wanted for their challenge, which was aliens have given you a super sense. How do you use it? Now we have given them 2,500 words instead of the usual 1,500. So they have a little bit more to play with.
2: We were generous overlords. We are. No, we were. That's not to say we will be again.
1: That's very true.
2: Austin and Scott are very special to us.
1: Well, they're just special.
2: Hey, my mom said that to me.
1: (laughs) Anyway, uh, go ahead and give these stories a listen, and once they're over, we'll talk about how voting's gonna go. Bon appétit. Sniffing Out Trouble by Scott Roche Of all the gifts the visitors could have given me, an enhanced sense of smell is the worst. As a teenage boy, I could come up with all kinds of uses for super hearing, taste, or even touch. As a musician, I could see boosted hearing being an advantage. But no, I had a nose which would be the envy of any bloodhound. While I didn't appreciate it for some time, I know my sister and mom both did. I took so many showers the first month, I was constantly pruny and insisted on washing all of my clothes with unscented soap. Eventually, I got used to it and learned how to damp it down. I investigated all kinds of careers requiring a sharp smeller. None of them really suited me. I gave up on the whole thing, deciding it would never be more than a parlor trick. Then the incident at the library happened. The city library had a rare book collection that attracted attention from all over the world. Some rich dude died and left his first editions to them, making it even better. Enter a thief who had a thing for stinky cologne, and a boy who could trace not only his scent trail, but also his unique body odor back to his hideout, and a new detective was born. Granted, not every case would depend on me being able to literally sniff out the culprit, but the chase and the danger was exciting, and I could be like my heroes from the comics. I didn't bust out a cape or put on long johns with a giant nose on my chest, but the detective in charge of the book theft pointed me at some books and videos. Over the course of a year, I began to solve little mysteries for people in school and church. I started to really think a lot of myself and what I could do. This was all challenged when a phone call from the same detective put me on a new case. One that didn't involve lost dogs or who perfume-bombed a locker. I answered when I saw his name pop up on my screen. Detective Barber, how can I help you? It's how Mom trained me to talk to adults. Mickey, I'm glad I could get you. Would you be interested in helping me with another case? He sounded like he was at the bottom of a well. Sure, I'd be glad to. Where are you? At the bottom of a well? I'm at the Johnson Farm, and they found a body. Interesting. Barbara must have heard my facial expression. Don't worry. It's been dead a long time. You don't have to worry about the way it smells. That was good. I'd made it this long without knowing what a corpse smells like, and I could wait a while longer for that. So it's a cold case? Yes and no. I think it's something you can help us with. I'll send a squad car to pick you up. It was Saturday, and Mom had gone antiquing. I didn't have anything planned. The idea of helping police solve a cold case warred with my desire not to smell fertilizer. Sure, I'll be looking out for it. The squad car pulled up, and I rode out into the country for the first time since I'd gone to Camp Itchy and Scratchy. I was firmly a city boy. We pulled up the long drive, and the car dropped me off. I could see people standing around, looking down at something. I had to assume it was the well. All of the visual input took a back seat to the smells which threatened to overwhelm me. By themselves, most of them would be pleasant enough. I could smell fresh-cut grass and flowers. If it weren't for the fact that the Johnsons had pigs and chickens, I could say all of them were. With focused concentration, I filtered out most of the nasal noise. I also pulled out some tissues and crammed one up each nostril. Barber met me near the small crane they must be using to lower people into the hole in the ground. His jeans and sweater must be brand new, but something about the way he wore them made them look old. He held out his hand and a smile made his wrinkles deeper. Thanks for coming. I shook his hand firmly, just like Dad taught me, and looked up at him. He was well over six feet tall and reminded me of a sloth, rounded shoulders, big eyes, and all. I just hope I can help. Do I need to go down there? I nodded towards the crane. He shook his head, jowls wobbling a little. No. The thing I brought you in here to have a sniff of is in the barn. He pointed to a crumbling set of walls which might have been a structure once upon a time. Is it safe? It hasn't fallen down yet. We walked over to it, crossing a couple dozen yards in relative silence. It was uphill, and I focused on breathing. Never in the best of shape, I panted hard by the time we got to the top. We walked through what was left of the door. The familiar smell greeted me from under so many layers of other smells, I couldn't make out what it was. The space beyond was well-lit with LED clusters on stands. Someone had gone to great trouble to make the barn look bad on the outside. On the inside, it was quite the workshop. It contained two work tables, separated by six feet of space with tool cabinets in between. Judging by the works in progress, one space was meant for dissecting electronics, and the other for bodies. When I saw the contents of the jars on some shelves, I realized the source of the smell. Someone was dissecting my alien benefactors. When I turned to the detective, he was already shaking his head. We don't know who's doing this, then? And we need to find out. Soon. This could become something of an interstellar incident. Orders from on high are to keep this hush-hush until we can find out as much as we can. That's why we brought you in. Anyone with your level of knowledge and experience about the visitors would probably go straight to them. And you don't think I will? There was almost a smile on his face. I know you don't hold them in as high in esteem as others. It was true. In addition to kidnapping me and giving me the supernose, it was them who was responsible for my missing father. The government paid Mom handsomely to keep her from raising a stink. I don't dislike them enough to do this, but I can see why you called me in. We've dusted for prints and looked for any other evidence. Nothing so far. He swept an arm around the room. The person whose lab this is kept it clean. The owner of the farm hasn't been out here for a couple of years. This section has lain fallow for at least that long. When he found the body... A visitor? The detective nodded. He contacted us and we came out. You said the body was old. The visitors had only been in touch with humanity for about five years as long as I knew. We don't know a lot about how quickly they decompose, or anything else about their biology. This setup could teach us a lot, but I know this body has been in the ground longer than the earliest known contact. Johnson came out here to dig a deeper well, and when he hit the lair with the body, he called us immediately. The well digger guessed the lair it's on goes back decades. Soon as the body's under wraps, I'll have a geologist confirm the suspicions. This was serious. The police were trusting me with something I couldn't even begin to understand the repercussions of. I was just a kid. The detective guided me to a chair. I must have looked queasy. Breathe? I laughed. Breathing was what I was here to do. Okay, let me sit here a minute. Then I can start. After taking a handful of deep breaths through my mouth, I closed my eyes and focused. I removed the tissues and took in the air through my preternatural nasal cavity. I used to read Daredevil when I was a little kid. I always wondered what it would be like to see the world like he did. I have a little taste of that. By concentrating, I could see the smells in the room around us. Based on chemical makeup, concentration, and air currents, I could build a sort of relief map of the room. If pressed, I could actually navigate a room by scent alone. It would be slow going, but it could be done. Through the glass jars and other containers, I could smell the visitors. It reminded me of durian, an oddly medicinal, strong-smelling fruit popular in Thailand. At first unpleasant, it was a smell so clearly unlike anything on earth, it made tracking seem easy-peasy. I also picked up the body odors of the other people in the room. I was able to screen them out after a few seconds. Finally, I found the person who'd probably done this. Male. Young, with a fondness for hand sanitizer. Probably in good health. The last time he was here was somewhere between 24 and 36 hours ago. I opened my eyes and looked at the detective. I hope that helps. Barbara shrugged his shoulders and cocked his head to one side. It does, a little. You were put through a lot by them, weren't you? There was concern in his eyes. I looked from him, down to the floor and back up. I suppose. I don't know what I would have been like if they hadn't snatched me. I would have been different, though. Maybe good different, and maybe bad different. You ever think about taking revenge? Anger warmed the center of my chest. You don't think I did this? I guess I yelled, since I heard my own voice bounce off the shack walls. Of course not. I just want to know if you think you could have. Maybe this person was like you, changed by them. And he wanted to get his revenge by carving them up. Certain I was off the hook as far as Barbara was concerned, I tried to relax my shoulders. I can see someone who's been through that would like to spend time carving on them himself. Problem is, no one who's got these powers is as old as your suspect. They only took the younger ones and even then only certain people. I'm still not sure of the criteria they used. Then we go around the other way. If it's not someone who was given powers, then maybe it was someone who wanted them. Jealousy is a powerful motive. I stood from my meditative position. I can see what you're saying. Even with my relatively sucky power, I've had people tell me how lucky I was. He tries to get even something like I have and can't get through the door. I can't thank you enough for your help. I shrugged. I don't feel like I've done much. After all, the description I gave you wasn't much to go on. This way, if we do catch someone, we can have you come in for a positive identification? I'd read enough to know making this sort of evidence admissible was sketchy. Of course, admissibility was the DA's problem. Glad to. I walked back out into the sunlight, glad to be away from the oddly oppressive smells in the barn. With eyes closed, I turned in the direction of warm light and basked for a handful of seconds. My nose lit up like a Christmas tree. Figuratively speaking, of course. The person who'd last been in the lab, and who was probably the one dissecting the aliens, was within smelling range. I opened my eyes and saw a young man, his dark suit rumpled a little from travel, standing there. He talked to one of the deputies and pointed in the general direction of the barn. I turned, trying to be as nonchalant as I could. I should get some credit for not breaking into a jog. Detective Barber held up a hand to stop me. Everything okay? Look over my shoulder. You see the guy talking to the deputy? Barber nodded. He's our FBI liaison. He's also your killer. He's the one I smelled. Barber looked at first like he was going to laugh. I think he realized I wasn't kidding when he saw how green my face was. I'm not going to ask you if you're sure. You look sure. This is a big deal if you're right. This whole thing could be government-sanctioned. Or he could be an independent operator. I've heard rumors of an underground market for alien organs. I didn't think I could feel any sicker. I was wrong. I ran to a clump of bushes and spilled what little bit of breakfast I'd had into them. When I stood wiping my eyes, Barbara was close by. "'I'll get a uniform to take you home. Don't worry about this whole thing. As far as you or anyone else knows, you didn't hear, see, or smell anything significant. If this is the guy, I'm going to ask him some questions. See if I can get a feel for where he was a day or two ago.' Barbara clapped me on the shoulder. "'It's going to be okay.' I nodded weakly and headed for a grouping of squad cars. While I waited for my ride, I thought about what the collective noun would be for them. Squedge? Finally, my ride showed up. This female deputy tried to make small talk. At first, I was too absorbed in thinking about why an FBI agent would be cutting up aliens near our little burg, Or anywhere else. Eventually, I would get the answer to that question. And it wasn't near what any of us thought. All that mattered to me, then? was the beautiful day and how good the woman in the brown uniform smelled. If I knew what awaited us all in the coming weeks, I would have asked for her number.
2: Headlights by Austin Malone Althea doesn't remember the nightmare immediately upon waking. Bennett's cries rouse her from what she thinks is a dreamless sleep. She opens her eyes, sits up, and her breath hitches at the sight of three hazy figures standing over her baby's crib. In the blood-chilling moment of self-loathing, where she finds herself torn between surging forward to protect her child and recoiling away from the intruders, they fade away. Bennett's crying has stopped. He stares wide-eyed at his mother. Althea relaxes her face, softening the terrified rictus into something more natural— and forces the tension out of her muscles so that her knees slide down from under her chin. By the time the trembling stops and her heart has retreated back to her chest from her throat, she's able to convince herself that what she saw was merely a trick of the morning light as it filtered through the bedroom blinds. It isn't until Bennett is changed and fed that Althea begins to suspect something darker at work. Bennett is in his pack-and-play in the living room watching cartoons while Althea is in the shower. After a year of living in this apartment, she has her bathing ritual perfectly synchronized to finish as the hot water runs out. Sure enough, she rinses the last of the soap down the drain just as the stream of water on her skin fades from scalding to lukewarm. She slaps the faucet closed before it goes cold. Sliding the shower curtain aside, she emerges into the steam-shrouded bathroom and freezes in place, one foot on the bathmat, the other ankle-deep in bathwater. Her eyes are locked on the mirror above the sink where the image of her reflection is obscured by the thick fog hugging the reflective surface. There's nothing out of the ordinary about the scene. She follows roughly the same routine day after day, and there is nothing overtly different about today. And yet, Althea remains rooted to the spot, her breath coming in ragged gasps as a knot forms in her stomach. Her eyes remain locked upon the shadowy figure on the other side of the mirror. Pale gray and ill-defined through the haze of condensation, its resemblance to her is superficial. As she stares, it seems to shift its shape before her stinging eyes. The limbs thin, shedding any hint of musculature. The towel wrapped around her hair resolves into an oversized, bulbous head. The shadow spots of her eyes expand, darkness pooling and spreading into canted, liquid black ovals. Althea shrieks, forcing her petrified body to move before the thing in the mirror can gain further definition. She lunges forward out of the bathtub. And, of course, the monstrosity in the mirror mimics her perfectly, closing an equal measure of distance between them. She claps her hands over her eyes and collapses onto the seat of the toilet, shuddering and sobbing. And that's when the nightmare knits itself together in her memory. Bennett is crying. She wakes to see three people standing around his crib. No, not people. They turn in unison at her terrified gasp, and there her childhood fears in the flesh. Those almond eyes, darkly glistening like fresh pitch, had terrorized her as a child from the covers of books in the New Age sections of bookstores. Those spindly limbs, reenacted with primitive computer imaging and late-night documentaries, Had kept her awake until dawn when she was a teenager. Now the trio of intruders seems to confer, their heads bobbing and swaying. Then two of them retreat through the wall, and the third turns toward Althea. She realizes then with sickening dread that she is unable to move. She can't even close her eyes against the sight of the thing's slow advance. A stuttering whimper. A small animal noise of fear fills her ears. The thing extends a mottled gray arm, impossibly long fingers stretching out to touch her face, and she hears words in the whimpering. Her own voice, a tremulous staccato whisper, saying, Please no, don't. Please don't. Don't touch me. Please. I'll do anything. Please. Take my baby. I don't care. Just don't. Please. And then there is pain, an unbearable pressure behind her eyes, and she's certain that they'll pop out of their sockets. And then, nothing. Althea reels from the memory, knocking the basket of bath bombs off of the toilet tank with a crash. Her stomach hitches. The acid sting of bile sears the back of her throat, and she reels off of the toilet seat, flipping it open and kneeling over it. She gags, dry heaving, but nothing comes up. A few deep breaths later, her stomach settles, and she reflects on her words in the dream. Take my baby? I don't care? That cinches it. There's no way those words would ever escape her lips under any circumstances in the real world. Horrifying as her memory of last night might be, it had clearly been nothing more than a dream. She climbs to her feet, giving a mental finger to the nightmare, and resumes getting ready for the day ahead. After getting dressed and checking the time, Althea returns to the living room to get Bennett ready to go. She pauses at the end of the hallway for a moment and just watches her son. Bennett is sitting in the playpen, staring at the brightly colored characters on the screen and gurgling through a wide, toothless smile. Althea's heart swells, her eyes misting, and she recalls again her words from the dream. Never. Her son is her everything. No force on earth or in hell could ever make her say the words her dreaming self had uttered. The TV show cuts to a commercial, and she takes advantage of the opportunity. Striding forward, she taps the remote on the arm of the chair, switching the TV off. Come on, kiddo, she says as she bends down to scoop him up. We've got to get you ready to go see the doctor. She frowns as she lifts him. A ripple of color, yellow, flickers momentarily above his head like a lens flare. It must be a trick of the light. Interference with the unshed tears in her eyes. Her hands are full of wriggling infant, so she can't rub her eyes. Instead, she blinks rapidly as she carries Bennett down the hall to the changing table. She lays him down, and the thing above his head reappears. More clearly defined this time, it resembles a glowing yellow ping-pong ball. Althea raises her hands and scrubs at her eyes, wiping away the residual moisture. It doesn't help. The little yellow orb hovers above her child's head, blazing like a tiny sun. She swipes her fingers through it, expecting... Well, she has no idea what to expect. She feels a liquid warmth and a soft gossamer stretching like spider silk. Then, with a pop, the orb detaches, rolling into her cupped palm. Bennett instantly ceases fidgeting. His limbs go slack and his eyes glaze over, vacant and expressionless. She can't even tell if he's still breathing. Bennett? She whispers. Nothing. A surge of panic explodes in her breast, but before she can act, the orb breaks in her hand like an egg yolk, and she is overwhelmed with sensation. Warmth spreads from the palm of her hand upwards, suffusing her. She is enveloped in it, safe. A familiar scent fills her nostrils. Comfort. A voice. The first voice she ever heard. Murmurs unintelligibly, crooning in her ears. There are no words. There is only love. The warmth, the smell, the voice. Safety, comfort, and above all else, love. The experience fades as quickly as it came. Althea staggers, weak-kneed, bracing her arm against the wall above the changing table. Bennett is beginning to move again, languid, slow, stretching motions. His eyes regain focus, fixing on Althea's face, and his cheeks dimple in a smile. As she watches, a pinpoint of light appears above his head, a tiny yellow spark. Dazed, Althea changes Bennett's diaper and dresses him in a fresh set of clothes. She hesitates before putting his shirt on. The spark has filled out and is identical to the orb from before. She puts his head through the neck hole with exaggerated care, taking pains to avoid touching the glowing sphere. A few minutes later, her phone chimes with an automated text, letting her know that the taxi she reserved yesterday has arrived. She straps Bennett into his car seat, slings the diaper bag over her shoulder and heads out. The cab driver has one, too. The orb above his head is a deep blue, stippled with flecks of purple. At one point, another driver cuts them off, and as he stomps the brake with a curse, his orb flares a brilliant red. She catches herself reaching out to touch it. Remembering Bennett's reaction, though, she jerks her hand back into her lap. In the waiting room at the doctor's office, orbs of varying colors float above every head. With downcast eyes, she accepts the sign-in sheet from the receptionist. Otherwise, she'd be unable to avoid fixating on the cotton candy pink orb flashing with miniature lightning bolts above the woman's head. Upon finding a vacant chair, she sits. She bends over Bennett, recumbent in his car seat, and devotes herself to making nonsense noises at her son. She resists the tug of spectral flashes on her peripheral vision. She particularly avoids looking at the storm-cloud gray orbs above the heads of a hollow-eyed couple in the corner. And she definitely doesn't want to look at the dull black bauble which hovers over their listless, hollow-eyed child. When the nurse calls her name, Althea barrels down the hallway with Bennett tucked under her arm like a football. Her relief upon arriving in the isolated examination room lasts only a moment, though as she looks up to see her least favorite nurse attending them. In addition to being brusque and generally unpleasant, this particular nurse handles Bennett more roughly than Althea is comfortable with. The last time she'd vaccinated Bennett, the baby had sported bruises on his legs for almost a week afterward. The orb above the nurse's head is a sickly green, churning with glaucous striations. After a brisk greeting, the nurse turns to Bennett, holding the measuring tape like a garrote. On impulse, Althea reaches out and plucks the orb from above her head. The nurse's arms drop, sending the tape fluttering to the floor. Her eyes go blank. The orb bursts, spilling itself into Althea's hand. Desperation. A ravenous hunger for needs just barely being kept at bay roars through Althea. Exhaustion. Bone-deep weariness. Jealousy. A faceless impression. A composite image of every happy mother. An empty void the size and shape of a baby. And permeating all of it, a yearning for recognition, an unfulfilled longing for appreciation. Althea comes back to herself. As focus returns to the nurse's eyes, Althea lays a gentle hand on the other woman's wrist. Hey she says. The nurse starts at the contact, looks down at Althea, narrows her eyes. I just wanted to thank you, Althea continues. I know how hard you work, and you probably don't hear this nearly as often as you should, but I really appreciate everything you do, all the sacrifices you make to keep my child healthy. Thank you. The nurse blinks, nods, Then, after retrieving the measuring tape, she begins examining Bennett. Her touch is gentle. She smiles. She even makes baby talk at him a few times, and the orb above her head slowly fills out. There's still green in it, but it's mostly a creamy white now. For the first time that day, Althea allows herself to wonder about her newfound ability. And about what she might be able to do with it. And the prize will be one million U.S. dollars. No. Two million U.S. dollars. Okay, are you going to supply it? Oh, wait, we're talking about what we have to give them? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I can't afford that. Never mind, carry on. So, well, what the prize will be, though... Oh, they do get a prize, though? Yeah, the winner will get a prize. We are indeed generous, overlords. Yes,
1: it is a He-Man Skeletor blanket.
2: (laughs) I have the power to decide who wins.
1: Well, you get some votes. I do get votes? Yeah, the voting is going to go the way the last one did, where each of the three podcast hosts, uh, me, Aaron, and Theo, we each get two votes. And... The voting for the public is going to be on Facebook and Twitter in the form of polls. And that is going to last until August 20th. And we will reveal the winner on September 1st.
2: All right. So, folks, you got to get those votes in.
1: Mm-hmm. Check Facebook and Twitter. You do technically get two votes because you can vote in both places.
2: Ah! <gasps> sneaky,
1: sneaky. And just FYI, a loophole, Twitter polls I can only put up for a week at a time. So you can legitimately get, like, three votes in on Twitter.
2: Ah! <gasps> Sneaky, sneaky, so, sneaky. Yeah.
1: Indeed. Yeah, so give us lots of votes. Let's make this an interesting race.
2: Show your favorite story some real love. There's a He-Man Skeletor blanket. It's up for grabs. Yeah. Give it to the person you like best. One of these... I mean, the story. The story, not the person. Totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well done, Aaron. Crickets, crickets. Why don't we move on? Okay. We have another segment.
2: <gasps>
1: but first...
2: I am overgasped.
1: Oh, well, lie down. Or maybe just go sit in the corner again and be quiet for a while. Okay. While we do a promo.
0: Have you heard of the Roundtable Podcast? Here's how it works. We invite authors onto the show. Welcome to the big chair at the Roundtable, Sherry Priest. Tim Pratt, Gail Carragher, Seanan McGuire, Patrick Rothfuss. We ask them questions. One excellent question.
2: You know, no one's ever asked me that question before.
0: Uh, these are great questions, by the way. Wow, no one's asked me that before. Then we invite writers on to present a story idea.
2: The genre of this story is a fantasy set in a space-like setting.
3: It's a superhero western. It's a steampunk-dieselpunk
2: fusion
0: just because of the timeline that it's in. It
3: is a supernatural horror story with just a bit of a detective thriller
0: pepper. Into it. And then we workshop the story. You're gonna know what your ending is when you know what your conflict is. Brian, I like your I like your Sopranos meets mm-hmm. Iron Punk meets Rome. Meets psychotic future killers. I think that's that's a, a great mashup. Oh,
2: that makes a lot of sense, and I can't believe I hadn't thought of that.
0: Sure.
3: I think I think that's that's a must. I love that idea.
0: And everyone leaves in a state of writerly bliss.
1: You guys have given me so much to work with right now. It's ridiculous. And
3: I'm- <laughs> the ideas that I've gotten out of this today, there's just. There's the gears are just running I've I've. (laughs) Spending this time with you guys has made it a whole lot more likely that this will get
0: written. The round table podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher radio, or at our website, www.roundtablepodcast.com. The round table podcast, literary alchemy, one podcast at a time.
1: And we're back. Now I know I said we have another segment for you, and we can I do. come out of the corner now? Yes,
2: yay! And I know
1: you're probably hoping it's a mystery meal. It's not. Spoiler it's, alert! It's it's not. We have, we, we have two that are done. We just can't seem to get all three of us to sit down and record them.
2: Well, it is hard with the it's, little it's bun hard. in the oven being out of the oven now.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're we're trying. Unfortunately, we're still not going to be asking any more prompts until we get at least one of these recorded. So. Sorry for that, but hey, you've got voting, so you can still interact with us.
2: Send us too far away, we like it. You can interact with us even if we don't have an open poll or mystery meal requests. Yeah. Send us a message on the podcast Facebook page or Twitter. Mm-hmm. You, you'll, you'll
1: actually be talking directly to me. I'm the one that, that usually runs those, and Aaron pops in on Facebook a lot.
2: If I see something that interests me enough. Yeah. As... Be interesting. You might get to interact with your girl mistress. Oh. <gasps> Gasp. <sighs> While I sit at home with a small baby, please entertain me.
1: Thank you. How about we entertain them like we're supposed to, and we'll give them a little seasoning. Okay. All right. This interview is with Chris Lester of the Metamore City podcast. Enjoy. Kiss that. Hey, lexicon of sewers and word chefs. I'm here slightly away from Balticon live with Chris Lester of the Metamore City world podcast, everything Metamore.
3: <laughs> hey, hey Chris. folks.
1: Chris, you are amazingly prolific. And just uh, generally yeah. amazing anyway
3: Oh, thank you Yeah,
1: you're welcome um, I'm going to go ahead and start with a <coughs> basic question that we like to ask everybody Is there a project that you have been chomping at the bit to write But haven't been able to either due to time constraints Or because you just feel like you can't do it justice yet? Yes What is that project?
3: Um, did you see the movie Treasure Planet?
1: Verily, yes
3: I really, really want to do a fantasy space romance set in a world like that, um, where you have where where space is an ocean, and you have people um, in a complex society with lords and ladies, um, and I really want to write in a setting like this, number one just because the romance of it is beautiful Um, number two because I really like the villains of that sort of storytelling world. I like villains who are honorable who would die before they break their word who are opposed to the hero not because of malice but because of sincere differences of opinion between honorable men
0: mm-hmm.
3: and um but who are nonetheless formidable adversaries and uh it's something that i would love to write someday um but all of the ideas that i have for it are just very they're, they're evocative imagery rather than plot concepts
1: right. yeah well, that explains what's holding you back on it.
3: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, so tell, us a li- tell my listeners a little bit about Metamore City.
3: Metamore City is a futuristic science fiction urban fantasy similar to E.E. E. Knight's The Vampire Earth or Shadowrun. Um, it takes place in a, a world that was a swords and sorcery medieval fantasy But magic never went away as technology advanced, and in fact magic has gotten stronger. And so you have a a society in which magic and technology have grown up side by side, and each one complements the other. Uh, And it's a world that has been spared a lot of the chaotic churn of Western civilization in our world, and that means that it is still a heavily stratified society um, with pretty rigid class roles that are pretty heavily socially enforced. Um, So it's a world with a level of technology that's a bit beyond ours, but in terms of their systems of government, they're, you know, a couple hundred years behind at least. And so it follows a wide variety of different characters from different backgrounds who are navigating through the, the complex world that's been created by this combination of, of magic, technology, and um, sort of social stagnation.
1: That's got to be extremely freeing to have a world that is technologically and magically based. because. You can, you know, if you want, if somebody wants a hot meal, they can go get a microwave, or they can, you know, whip up a magical flame. Just as an example.
3: Well, I mean, yes, but the thing about any any world like this, you have to set your rules for what magic can do, right? And you have to have some reasonable under you know understanding for yourself as an author, even if it never gets onto the page. You need to know what is and is not. Mm-hmm. realistically achievable. Right. Um, in Metamore, magic is capable of creating illusions relatively easily at relatively low cost. Mm-hmm. But unless you have an eidetic memory and can remember exactly what something looks like, mm-hmm. you're going to have a very hard time making that illusion look believably like somebody in particular. Right. Um... You can summon objects from one place to another, but it's temporary, mm-hmm. and you know the the uh, objects will snap back to where they came from after the spell expires, unless you're spending an absolute crap ton of energy, right. which involves things like human sacrifice and dedicated, you know, supernatural machinery. Right. So you have it's not an anything goes kind of environment. Mm -hmm. You still have to have rules. Right. And, um, there have to be, there has to be some kind of logical consistency to it.
1: we do like to be a little ego bolstering and give you a moment to brag on yourself. What would you say is your greatest strength as a writer or creator?
3: I think my greatest strength is probably in characterization in, uh, Creating characters who are um, distinct from one another, who are believably flawed, um, who come from a variety of backgrounds and who have, you know, sort of hang ups and issues that are consistent with those backgrounds, um, and have sort of a a consistent internal voice uh, to themselves, both in how they speak and in how they think. And the things that they notice when you're writing from their perspective Yeah,
1: and uh, th- now to bring that ego down what would you say is your greatest weakness and how have you striven to overcome it
3: uh, greatest weakness I've got a few I'm trying to figure out which one is the one to talk about here I think my greatest weakness is um, I've led a relatively blessed life Mm -hmm. um i've had the advantage of different kinds of privilege that um give me blind spots Mm -hmm. that can be difficult to overcome because you don't know what they are until somebody points them out to you right um the uh it's a constant struggle when you're when you're writing about characters of a different class, different race, different gender, different sexual orientation, um different sort of demography like where did you know where did you grow up in the world, were you a city person, were you a country person? Um, where you, you know, somebody from the suburbs or you person who, um, has been trained in a life that requires the application of violence, Mm um, you know, a so-called warrior culture. Right. Um, so I, I write... Action. I write a um, conflict that is so much more intense than anything that I've ever experienced. I write about characters of vastly different socioeconomic status to my own. Um, and so I have to be very careful to listen to people's stories who are from the kinds of worlds that i'm trying to portray um to make sure that the presentation of those characters is done respective respectfully and believable and that requires some you know that that involves one-on-one conversations Mm -hmm. and involves doing a lot of reading yes it involves um Studying fiction that has been written by people who are from the kinds of backgrounds that I'm trying to understand. Mm. And uh, even then, with all of that, you still are never quite sure if you're there. And so there always has to be some humility and some openness to Receiving new information mm-hmm. and recognizing that any persons who comes to you and says, I don't think this feels right for this, this and this reasons to still understand that that even then that person does not speak for all people of subtype X, right. they're sharing one uh, data point and it's one more data point than you had which makes it valuable, but you also have to be careful not to extrapolate too far from it. Um, or else you can err in the opposite direction. Right. So it's, it's constantly a, a balance.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else that, you know, the wisdom you wish to impart to my listeners, anything else you want to discuss?
3: Write every day, do whatever you have to do in order to make that work for you. Make and- it, make it a game. Um, that's what I do. I uh, use, I use something called the magic spreadsheet, which is a shared Google spreadsheet that people all over the world use to publicly report on their daily word counts. Mm -hmm. And it assigns points to you based on that. And then based on the number of words that you've written and more importantly, how many days in a row you've written. And uh, the points mean absolutely nothing, but in any game the points mean absolutely nothing yeah yeah. so it's it still is enough to trigger the reward centers in my brain and make me keep writing and um i try not to end a day's writing at the end of a scene or at the end of a chapter if Mm -hmm. i can help it um whenever possible whenever time permits I take an extra 10, 15 minutes and write a piece of the next scene right. so that I'm never walking away um, at the end of something. Mm-hmm.
1: So where can we find you on The internet?
3: You can find my podcast, which has a lot of my fiction, at metamorcity.com that's m-e-t-a-m-o-r-city.com you can also find me in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts uh, by searching for Chris Lester or Metamorph City Uh, my books are available for sale at liminalcorvidpress.com that's l-i-m-i-n-a-l c-o-r-v-i-d press.com and my blog is at chrislester.org
1: And just FYI, I highly recommend making the cut. Thank you. Thank you, Chris.
3: My pleasure, August.
2: Ah, Chris Lester, our sexy young friend. As the Cards Against Humanity card that he signed for us informed me.
1: He is sexy.
2: Aw, how sweet. Yeah. So what's next? What's next? Uh... I
1: can't talk, I'm drinking.
2: It's actually true. It is your birthday, after all. You should be able to drink all you want, right?
1: Yes. So, yeah, we we recorded this last night. <laughs> I'm not drinking this early in the morning, guys. Sure. Yeah, so without a mystery meal, that is all we have, segment-wise. So let's wrap this up, Erin.
2: Unless they'd like to just listen to us talk randomly,
1: I don't think any of us wants that.
2: Lollipop, lollipop, lolly, 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 lollipop.
1: Corner.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Uh huh. So yeah, I'm gonna wrap this up <singing> and be quiet. Oh, thank you.
2: You're no fun. You're a little
1: too happy. Oh. So as usual, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash You can help support the show, get us you know everything from the ability to pay our voice actors and writers to eventually maybe actually getting better recording equipment and a recording setup that doesn't give us crap audio quality. Like, you know, us just sitting on my bed.
2: Except that I'm in the corner.
1: Yeah, the corner of my bed. Shh. Ha ha. This is not a kitchen. I mean, we're in the kitchen.
2: The disaster kitchen is wherever we are. Can I come out of the corner now?
1: <laughs> it sounds to me like you're already out of the corner.
2: Yeah, I don't really listen to you. Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> you want to tell them about iTunes?
2: It exists.
1: And what should they do there?
2: Find us. And? Like us.
1: And? Leave
2: comments so other people can find us. There
1: we go. Leave us a review on iTunes. That would be a great help.
2: But you know what's really more important? That they send us stuff? That's my line! Yeah, well, we're not done yet. We just have to tell them what the prompts are. All right! Okay, so getting our prompts. Yay, prompts! You want to do the first one?
1: All right, open prompts. Prompt number nine. You wake up alone at night with bite marks on your legs. What's eating you?
2: Podcat. Podcat. Rainy. I mean, she is laying down there where your legs would normally be.
1: Yeah, she's just not moving. Is she dead? I doubt it.
2: Yeah, it'd, it'd probably be a lot stinkier in here if she was.
1: Yeah. But anyway, tell prompt number ten.
2: Oh, yes, I will. Thank you for the reminder. And prompt number ten. An animal from outside your local ecosystem has entered nature and is breeding uncontrollably. So tell us, how are those Catholic rabbits doing? <laughs> Catholic rabbits.
1: <laughs> so it's been a while since we've actually, you know, told listeners, because we might have new listeners. That'd be awesome. Um, but tell Hi, them, new listeners. Hi, new listeners. But since we've told them what those prompts are for, those are intended for our Stoke the Fire stories. Flash fiction up to 1,500 words based on one of those prompts. Write it, send it to us. You can be on the show. Awesome. Send us stuff. Yes. And also, keep in mind, you can write main ingredient stories. Those can be about anything. Uh, we prefer no erotica, but up to
2: five thousand words. And again, you could be on the show. And the main reason for no erotica is we do try to maintain a safe for work sort of vibe
1: for the most part. And then we we occasionally have some cursing, whether it's in a story or if we just get a little out of hand,
2: but, or if it's something from like a Balticon panel. Yeah, um, we may occasionally, if we get enough demand for it or enough stories for it, do an adult R-rated do episode. An explicit episode. But we would post warnings on that. So if yeah. it's something that you would like to have us do, or you would like to submit things for, mm-hmm. go ahead. Let us know. Yep. It's we are adults and we are willing. <laughs> We're adults. That just sounded bad. <laughs> We're adults. Oh, and speaking of new listeners, hi Nick Kelly.
1: <laughs> We're gonna start doing that every episode, aren't we? We might. Just start saying hey to him. Hey Nick. So Nick, <laughs> you're awesome. You rock, man. <laughs> yeah hey, people who give us shout-outs, we give them back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's done the whole gamut. He did an iTunes review. He's backed us on Patreon. He has sent us a Stoke the Fire story, which has been accepted and will eventually be produced. I think it's about four months away, just Mm -hmm. because of what we've gotten in the queue. But, yeah, so.
2: You see what happens? You start submitting and talking to us. We give you the love back.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, send us stuff.
2: That's my line! Stop stealing my line. It's my thing. Please?
1: Send us stuff.
2: No! You're so mean. I know, it's great. Send us crap. Damn
1: it! And we'll use it to feed the masses.
2: (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at TheMeltingPodcast.com You can also find us on Twitter
1: At meltingpodcast,
2: Or you could email
1: us TheMeltingPodcast at gmail.com The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No-Derivatives License, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website.
2: Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project.
1: And our theme is by Drew Richcreek.
2: Send us stuff.